0: Welcome back, AAP subscribers and AAP podcast listeners. I'm Chris Versace, and today is Tuesday, April 11th, as in the day before, the March CPI report. This is gonna be one to watch, folks, and helping me break it all down, as well as share some of our favorite valuation tools when we think about stocks, is Todd Campbell, editor of The Streets, Street Smarts. Todd, toddler, Toddie C, welcome back. How are you, my friend?
1: I'm doing well, Chris. I'm doing well. You know, I'm I'm riding a high because, you know, my fantasy baseball team's doing really well so far this year. I just came off of a big day yesterday. I had some good pitching out of a uh, couple of my starting pitchers. Yeah, things are going well. And it's 70 well, degrees. Well, back up, back up, Chris, back up. 70 you, degrees here in New Hampshire, which is just
0: amazing. New Hampshire. So uh, let, me, let me get this straight. You're happy because fantasy baseball is doing well, i.e., you're living in your dreams.
1: Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean, there's nothing more fun. For I mean, you think about it. It's like a portfolio of baseball players that I've created, and I can test my uh, my stock picking analysis skills, but an application to other things. <laughs>
0: Okay, Todd. Let's get uh how about we get back to reality? What do you say?
1: <laughs> yeah, let's do it. No, I, we got a big week with well big day tomorrow and I swear probably nobody's thinking about today today. They're all thinking about tomorrow morning. It's going to make for an interesting close because yeah, I no, I, that I, lots of people will be flattening out because of the be uncertainty.
0: I, I agree. So let let's let's set the stage for this. Um you know, so again, we're Tuesday, April 11th. Uh, on the 12th, we get the March CPI. The 13th, we get the March PPI, and we round out the week with the March retail sales report. And you know, as we know, the market is uh, has started to reprice in a 25 basis point move by the Fed in May, but there the path ahead is still widely divergent between what the Fed shared in its recent update and what recent Fed heads had to say uh, versus what we see in the CME FedWatch tool would suggest the markets continue to see not one, not two, but let's just say, air quotes here, Todd, several rate cuts before the end of 2023. And I think there's going to be a little bit of sobering thought one way or the other. But, um, Continuing with that, Uh, core CPI for March, 5.6% is the consensus, up from 5.5%. But Todd, you were sharing something as well before we got on here from the Cleveland Fed that kind of like blew my, I mean, I don't have a lot of hair left, but it blew it back.
1: Yeah, so I mean, one of the ways that obviously you can take a look at um, and think about what could happen in the future, right? So we know we're going to get the data for March um, tomorrow, and that's great. But I think people are going to really be interested in what's the direction? What's you know, what's likely to happen with inflation from here? Is it going to reaccelerate or not reaccelerate? And one way you can kind of game that out and get a feel for whether or not you're going to see, you know, inflation sort of, you know, the, the head pop up again is to look at the Cleveland Feds now casting tool. And, you know, right now the Cleveland Feds now casting tool is saying that yes, core CPI will be 5.6. I think, is what they're looking for for core tomorrow uh, for March, and the headline will be five point two two, which is interesting on its own, right, Chris? Because core being higher than headline CPI. Yeah. high. Um, and, well, no, no, I it, mean
0: that's that that that's a positive, right? I mean, you, you if you think about it, it, it suggests that either hey, we're seeing food prices come down, or we're seeing uh, energy prices come down, which which both, of course, are helpful.
1: Right, because it's that's the core. Listeners, remember, it gets rid of the highly volatile uh, food and energy component. In, in- which,
0: which, which, by the way, I know we can't use this language, but that's total BS that they exclude that when you look at how much an average paycheck goes to food and gas prices and other energy prices. Totally ridiculous.
1: Yeah, it's silly. It's silly. Okay, so getting back to what you were asking about before, Chris, the April now casting um, estimate is for CPI of 5.37. Now remember, I just said the March estimate is for five point two. Headline. So You're talking now headline, right? is saying that year-over-year inflation will increase in April. Headline. Headline.
0: Okay. What about core?
1: It'll be. I'm going to call it flat, but they're looking for five point six four versus five point six six.
0: Okay. So let's let let's assume that that's what the expectations are coming out of the actual March CPI report. That tells us, Todd, that inflation just continues to be very sticky. And and for context, let, let's just remember that the core CPI peaked at 6.6% in September. You, you just said there that even for April, core CPI is still around 5.6%, about a point lower. I would argue, Todd, that is still a ways away from the Fed's 2% target.
1: Right, and if it does tick up in April, in uh, stay level or constant, we don't make the headway that we would expect, right? right. Um, then that is going to, again, raise question marks of what is the Fed's next move going to be. I mean, right now I'm just now pulling it up so we have that most accurate number here. 72% probability according to the CMA group, Group's Watch tool, 72% probability that we'll get 25 beeps in May. So you know tomorrow could either jump that to 100% or knock it back. Um, you know, but again, we're we're this this is this is the big question. Can the Fed back off on Fed rate hikes if inflation stops trending the right way?
0: I don't see it. I would argue. And if that's up-
1: true, Chris, then all of those forecasts for cuts later on this year have got to be called into question.
0: Agreed. I I would even go one step further, Todd. I would say that. Even if it comes down, if it's a little softer than expected, you know, again, the consensus for March core is 5.6%. If it's 5.4, five, 5.3, five, right, we do see some progress. It's still not enough, in my opinion, to justify the number of rate cuts that we're seeing by the CMA tool, CME tool in the back half of the year. You know, and, and the crux here, uh, listeners, is that, uh, particularly with last week, right, when we saw the big miss on March ADP jobs, right? We saw the JOLTS report for February showing uh, the number of job openings falling below that all-important level, Todd, of, you know, 10 million. You know, there were some concerns that the economy was, oh, geez, about to really slide into something far, far slower than we were looking for. And then Friday's March employment report was pretty much in line with expectations on the headline. But, Todd, did you see the number of jobs reported, uh, gained by the household report for March. I almost fell out of my chair. What was it? Uh, it was more than 500 million. Sorry, 500 million, uh, 500,000. Uh, 500, yeah. I want to say it was closer to five. I want to say it was a little north of 550, but easily north of 500.
1: Household starting to make up the gap that it was giving up last year.
0: Maybe? I think so. I think that's right. So you know. It, it, the, the only reason I point that out is uh, for, for two reasons. One, when you look at the sum of the data, it doesn't suggest that the economy is falling off a cliff. But the other one is, we always have for our conversation on valuation. You like that SAT word, Todd? Germaine. Germaine, I like <laughs> <Miller. laughs> Anyway. Um, what I was going to say is it, it'll be germane to our conversation on valuation because you really want to triangulate around the data as much as possible so you get a real feel of what's going on. In, in my experience, it's always a little dangerous to use just one data point to make a conclusion. And, and again, we'll we'll talk more about this when we get into valuations. But but Todd, what what are you thinking about that? Do you do you agree with that line of reasoning that I'm putting out there or do you do you have another take on it?
1: Um I wouldn't I would only say that this is the time of year seasonally where you do see some strength and some prices for for some commodities and especially oil. Um, so it may not the in the year over year change theoretically, because we did have a huge spike in commodity prices after, you know, in the second quarter of last year. So the year over year comparisons are much easier. So you could still show some pretty solid year over year growth as we push deeper into May and June. So but I think that the so I wouldn't, don't necessarily would call one month a trend necessarily, right? Yeah. I think we're going to have to see how it kind of evolves over time. But, you know, your point about looking at multiple data points also should probably apply to inflation. So where a lot of people like to focus on CPI, that's a lot of media attention is, is paid to that. Obviously, the Fed's preferred measure is PCE. And I just looked at the Cleveland feds now cast tool for the PCE numbers to also see if they confirm what CPI is saying. And Chris, they actually show a pickup in year over year for both the core and the headline in PCE in April. So that is also something that we're going to want to keep our eye on basically confirming uh, what, what, you know, we just talked about with CPI possibly, you know, making less headway, making the Fed's job more difficult if, if in terms of pausing, um, if multiple indexes, well, indexes rather, um, start going the wrong way.
0: Right. I totally agree. And, and before we transition over, Todd, I, I have to admit, I didn't look at this. I don't know if you did. Um, I know that uh, on Monday, uh, the day before today, uh, the Atlanta Fed ADP, no, sorry, the Atlanta Fed I got to get this right. GDP now, that's it, Mm. was updated to reflect the March employment report uh, when the market was closed. Did you happen to see that number?
1: Yeah, it's actually been revised up again. So I think it got down as low as Mm -hmm, mm 1.5%. And now we're back to 2.2%. And this is something we talked about the other day. I think it was maybe two weeks ago. We were talking about how. You still get GDP now gets updated because data is, you know, rear view mirror, right? So it will still get updated um, in the month of April for the first quarter until, of course, we get the release later this month. I think the next update is scheduled for the 14th, actually, this Friday. Because yeah, we're so that'll ready.
0: mean that'll mean CPI, PPI and most likely retail sales.
1: Retail sales, like, do we get industrial production or productivity? You,
0: I think we, I I don't know, yeah. but I, we We tend to get them on the same day.
1: Yeah. So I, I think that those will go into it as well. And, you know, but again, for perspective, GDP now was over 3%, you know, in mid-March.
0: Right. but, but So but remember- it, it's
1: still trending, the, the revisions are still trending lower for GDP.
0: Right. Right. And again, that model is updated as new data points are kind of, you know, come due. Uh, they have a wonderful uh, link on that page that actually tracks back, I think, the last several weeks. You can get a real rolling feel for what's, you know, uh, making the forecast model, you know, stronger, weaker, what have you. So I, it's, it's a pretty good little tool. And I have to say, Todd, that um, just stepping back for a second, the various regional feds, they put out a lot of good data, don't they? Absolutely, I think that
1: their individual information that they release is, <laughs> in many ways, more valuable than what they, you know, the group think, group stink, as Doug Cass likes to likes to say, where they get together and they all settle on, okay, this is the message we are going to hammer home to everybody. But yeah. I think if you go to each individual um, Fed's page, there's all sorts of really interesting insights you can glean.
0: Agreed. Agreed. And and with that, uh, before we transition over to valuation, you, I think, one, maybe two podcasts ago, Todd, when we were talking about tighter credit, you said there was one report that you were waiting to see, right? Any idea when that comes out? No, it should come, I
1: imagine soon. It's the SLU's report there, the Survey of Senior Loan Officers. Is that the one you're talking about that I mentioned? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. So in the January report, it did indicate credit, Tighter, tighter credit standards and um, lower limits and more collateral being requested, and obviously since January, a few things have happened <laughs> in the world of finance. <laughs> so it wouldn't shock me if the survey this time around is pretty, pretty dire, dour, whatever. I mean, I, I have a hard time believing it, that banks are getting any friendlier. Um, and, you know, with with obviously the big, we got J- what, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, and City on Friday. PNC,
0: PNC too.
1: And PNC as well. That's right. Yeah. Over why the course would... of the next two weeks, a lot of insight.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Into, Agreed. Into but, loan activity. But, but so, sorry to almost talk over you there, Todd. Um, but, you know, here's the thing, right? do they need to get friendlier? Because, you know, I, I, I wrote this piece adding a new position to the AAP portfolio earlier today. Members, be sure to check that out. Um, and, you know, anytime there's a vacuum, right, it tends to get filled a little bit. That, that's, you know, um, I, I think a great example, and I, I allude to this in my comments, you know, uh, you know, Sears, Models, Sports Authority, Circuit City, uh, Borders Books, each of them right, had customers who were still going there, still trying to buy products, even when they closed. And it, it's an incremental gain for those who are still left standing, right? So why would, I mean, those banks don't necessarily have to get more aggressive in the near term. They might pick up incremental business, but they don't have to, is the point.
1: Yeah, I mean, there will be individual, like like anything, right? There will be individual winners and losers, right? I mean, in the aggregate, maybe it's telling you that the 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 headwinds against the industry have, have strengthened, and that may make it more difficult uh, to identify those winners. Or maybe there's fewer winners to, sl- and that's why you need you know the work that Real Money AEP is doing, um, you know, to highlight and kind of ferret out who those winners could be. Um, but I, I think that that is it, You know, what's interesting too is if bank credit stands are tightening Uh, in loan activity is falling. Well, that does give the Fed some cover because Mm -hmm. it would add add to the thinking that any uptick inflation will be, in this case, transitory um, and, and, you know, will revert slower because, you know, I mean, financing is the the engine of economic, economic activity, right?
0: Yeah, I mean we we've talked about this at a, in AAP and I'm sure others have elsewhere. You know, the, the the big unknown is, you know, what's the equivalent of that credit tightening? 25 basis points, 50 basis points, we we simply don't know yet. And you know, candidly, and I've shared this with AAP members, you know, I, I really want to pay attention to what these banks over the next, you know, week, 10 days uh, tend to say as they report about a variety of things from loan growth, loan growth prospects, Credit quality, the consumer, um, but really what they see ahead for for activity—not not just to see if we're getting a turn in the investment banking business, uh, which I, I doubt we're going to see near term—but um, really what they're seeing um, on on the fallout for this tighter credit. Um, to me, that's that's going to be probably one of the most insightful things that we'll get. Uh, from the banks over the next couple of days?
1: Yeah, I mean, what I, I'm really curious too, and this is something that Doug Cass um, has talked a little bit about recently is the commercial real estate market and some of the, the potential pain points there. I mean, obviously rates are higher and if banks want more collateral, uh, refinancing floating rate debt that was used to secure some of those commercial real estate properties could become hard. And, and you know, if it gets hard, too hard, um, you may see people just walking away from those buildings. And saying, okay, we're gonna, you know, leave it with the CMBS holders, and they're gonna have to figure out <laughs> figure out what to do with it. Uh, and we've already started to see some of that stuff. I and mean, we saw Pimco um, last, I think, in February, uh, basically default on 1.7 billion in commercial um, property uh, loans on seven different buildings. And I think the idea there was to kind of force the hand of the lenders to get them to renegotiate more favorably. Uh, but you can, you and you're going to see sales, you're going to see building sales that are going to be, you know, much at the peak valuations, you know, granted in the easy money 2020, 2021, uh, we're at. So I think that, you know, I think that's the other and thing to watch as far as, um, you know, what these banks are saying is, you know, is, does that mean that they're no longer willing to support? the commercial real estate market because they don't want to take any more risk on in that area than they already have. And that's a big thing for smaller and mid-sized regional banks. They have way more exposure.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny, I, for the last several years, even before the pandemic, I've kind of been waiting, right, for the commercial, um, the commercial real estate market to kind of get hit a little bit, if only because of the nature of how we're doing things are really changing. You know, from from banking to even, you know, um, grocery shopping, you know, it's when was the last time you were in a bank, Todd?
1: You'll laugh. OK, I, it actually was fairly recently. Otherwise, my answer would have been years. <laughs> but I was down visiting my uh, stepdad, who's, you know, I mean, he's 80, so he's a little old fashioned and he wanted to um, add me to one of his accounts for you know, legacy purposes, make sure mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. getting to safe box, And we had to do that still in person. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but for traditional banking, yeah, no, I mean, it's just way easier to use your phone.
0: Way easier. I, oh, 100%. And, you know, you, you look at that and you look at some other things that are kind of shifting around, again, in these increasingly digital lifestyles. And I, I don't think we've seen the final shakeout from a commercial real estate perspective. You know, I, I know I've seen... Some branches around me close over the last several years, but I, I would still say that there are way too many. And I think as you know uh, gen, uh, you know Gen Z and whatever the gen after Gen Z starts to move up, we're going to see even less and less of them. But and well,
1: to, yeah, we'll, and to piggyback on that and just I mean, think about all of these office buildings that corporations built in the last 20 years. And in the post covid world, you still have a lot of hybrid workers. So you got vacancy rates way higher than people yeah. expected and modeled. You know, oh, totally. and some of these are huge, huge buildings. I mean, seventy-five hundred million dollar buildings um, that you know can house 5,000 employees. There aren't that many buyers <laughs> available for those kind
0: of properties. Now, I, I you know, I, I don't think. You know, I, I hate to make absolute statements, right? But I, I rather doubt that. Um, there's a lot of companies that are measurably increasing the square footage that they're taking down in existing buildings. If anything, I bet you there's more of a rationalization going on probably resulting in more companies in, you know, a particular, you know, set of buildings or maybe even more companies in fewer buildings, right? Because it's all about rationalization, which probably means that, you know, future commercial construction is going to be challenged, um, leaning to uh, you know, infrastructure spending is probably the big, the big driver, the CHIP, the CHIPS Act, um, inflation reduction, all driving non-residential construction, which by the way, has indeed been picking up
1: yeah and you know you have a great i'm actually covering it in smarts tonight as well just talking about some of these industrial stocks that have gotten beaten up in the last couple months maybe pre- presenting a
0: nice little opportunity to oh to cat. weights too so like so, cat deer and some of the others
1: yep yep uri um was one of the ones yep and uh and i think vulcan which is another aap me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mentioning in the smart tonight smarts newsletter and talking a little bit about that because i think that those are the areas that you want to focus on um, when it comes to, you know, the industrials, you know, I mean, I think that those, you know, roads, bridges, airports, that kind of stuff seems to, to have a nice tailwind, you know, that is separate from what we were just talking about with, you know, building, you know, 30, 30 story skyscrapers (laughs) to house 5,000 people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. So, um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm tracking that data kind of closely, but the one that I haven't seen a lot of people talk about, and this is probably just given my uh, history uh, back in the mid nineties when I was uh, working on a team that covered um, machinery capital goods stocks. Um, we covered actually uh, the rail car manufacturers, Trinity Industries, Greenbrier, and there was like one or two others out there. I think American Car was public back then. Um, and we would track commodity loadings. So the Ameri- the Association of American Railroads puts out weekly data, and then you, and then monthly data, which you can of course aggregate up for the quarter and stuff. So I, I continue to track that. And last I looked, uh, what was it? Non-metallic minerals, uh, concrete, sand, aggregates, blah blah blah. The traffic was, you know, up nicely year over year. So, you know, that's another indicator to me that, hey, this non-residential construction is happening because you need those materials.
1: Yeah, it's a really good early look um, to see. I agree with you. And it's funny, I haven't looked at that recently, but about a decade ago, I remember that was part of like my weekly ritual where I had to go through and just see what the heck the changes were, because I really did, you know, kind of hat tip you and what's going to happen in some of these baskets, like basic materials and, and also industrials.
0: Or 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 last year, you know, if you were looking for the turn in the automotive industry, you know, the weekly data, if you tracked it great with uh, with uh, automotive uh, loadings, it was great.
1: Great point. Great point. And also, I, there was a, I think there was a way to look at oil oil tank, you know, the, the special ones that they have to, on the trains to to so so that anyways, listeners, go get, go ahead and, and Google that up and check it out. Add it to your bookmarks.
0: I think the word you're looking for are the two words are tanker cars. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Todd, let's uh, let's pivot here and talk valuation. And, and part of the reason I want to do this is you know folks are always saying, oh, the PE of the market, the PE of this, whatever. But you know, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I don't like to hang my hat on any one number. Uh, typically, when I'm trying to assess the value of a stock, uh, either upside, downside, like we talked about in last week's podcast about determining risk and reward. I try to triangulate, use multiple tools uh, to determine those upside, downside, uh, you know um, levels. And I, I think I rattled off pretty quickly last week you know, uh, from PEs, we use historical PEs, we use uh, peer PEs, taking a look at, you know, where they've peaked, where they've troughed in the past, what earnings growth are kind of looking like, yada, yada, yada. But the PE or price to earnings ratio is probably one of the simplest, quickest, arguably dirtiest tools out there that people use. Um, it has its... Um, merits i would say but it's not the only tool that is out there and todd because um you know uh you're joining me today not the other way around i'm gonna allow you to share some of your favorite valuation tools but but just remember todd i got a whole list of them right here
1: (laughs) fantastic well i'm gonna give listeners my my favorite tool this is the tool that i've been using for well over 20 years, this is part of the model that I use and used to sell to portfolio managers at major hedge funds and and um, and mutual funds. And part of that model with fair valuation, what I would do is very simply. It's very easy. You can do this yourself. Um, is calculate the forward PE, and then compare the forward PE as a ratio to the five-year PE low. And really what you want to do is you want to find your forward PE to be as close to or below the five-year PE low. So I would reward a company if they had, say, the ratio is 1.5 or less. And I would really be happy when I saw it at one or below one.
0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Did you just say reward the company? As in, yes, I Todd will give I you my
1: dog. yes, <laughs> I will not buying. Co- yep. No, no. Reward simply meaning that it, it was an input into the model, okay. and that the model had a, it was a scoring system. So I would reward it with a higher score, and and so, and that would influence what stocks were screened better versus worse within the model. And it, what I like about it is it's a very simple, like you said, P is very simple and easy to use. It has problems, but it's very mm-hmm. simple and easy to use. And I, the reason I use forward PE is, and I use, so I use forward PE relative to historical P. And that's because stocks are forward looking. So if I see a stock that is trading at 10 times forward earnings per share, but historically people have t- paid 20 to 30 times earnings my assumption is that you're going to have mean reversion and that company will end up you know you'll end up seeing those shares left so Ford p relative to 5 year p low i think is something that many investors could benefit from in you know including
0: in their in their valuation toolbox if you will okay so that's 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 interesting because you just said it's it's a ratio right so in the past one of the things that we've done this is back in my cyclical days that i was alluding to earlier we would actually look at the ratio of a company's PE to the PE of the S and P 500 over time, you know, and that's not one that folks, you know, that, that, that's not one of the well-trodden out ones, but it is another tool that you can look at. Um, it is important, though, to understand the history, where you are in the cycle. Why are you laughing?
1: No, I I agree with you. I wasn't laughing. I was just smiling. (laughs) I agree with you. The only thing that I would say, and the reason that I don't use that in the scoring model, is that I've found that it's better to compare apples to apples rather than apples to oranges. So you could, for example, compare basic materials industry PE. Mm Mm-hmm to a basic material stock that would give you more insight than say maybe looking at the S&P 500 relative to the S&P 500 because some baskets obviously are going to have just naturally lower P ratios like consumer goods stocks than say technology companies. So and I and then I actually focus on individual companies P ratios because some companies within technology say compare an IBM's historical P mm-hmm. to say CrowdStrike's uh, oh yeah, going to be no, give you no, total no, no, total apples and oranges. Totally, but I I do think that yeah, it's interesting to be able to look at it, and you're right. I do remember them that a lot of people were were looking at that at one point.
0: Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you that you you know one of the first things that I do when I'm taking a look at a name is I I will actually look at a five to ten year chart uh, price chart of the stock, and I will note you know where it bottoms out you know both from a multiple perspective. Uh, and we'll we'll talk about some of the ones that that we tend to use, but also from a news flow perspective, what drove those shares to that point, and also take a look at the economic data at the time, again, trying to understand what was working for or pushing on the company's business, its earnings, and therefore the stock price. So, okay, Todd, so we've got uh, simple PE, we've got this um, forward PE, which, by the way, is that the is that the current quarter annualized or rolling forward 12 rolling, months?
1: Rolling forward 12 months.
0: Okay. Okay. Perfect. So we have that compared to the five-year PE low. Um, now, Todd, what are your thoughts on the PEG or price-to-earnings growth ratio? Do you like it, not like it, find it can be challenging? When 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 do you bust that out? I don't use it nearly as much
1: as I did a long time ago. And why, I mean, why is first- that? when I first started in the business i want to say 97.98 there was it seemed like there were a lot of people using peg in the early part of the you know the 2000s late well 2000s, I mean early.
0: yeah think about it right because this internet thing is going to go on forever <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> right um I think p the growth can be can be interesting but again I just I think that p to historical is just my favorite approach so I would use P to growth for technology stocks as an input if you wanted an additional input to it, just like I would use price to book for, say, you know, financial stocks yeah, as an additional yeah. input. So I think it's it's one of those things that you could use selectively depending on the industry you're looking at, which of course probably dovetails into it. I mean, that's, that's the problem with P's, right? You can't use P ratios for companies that don't yet have earnings. So no, but there, you know, if well, you try I mean, to huge valuation, you know, of say high growth younger companies, you're probably not going to find the P ratio to be very helpful because it's always going to tell you the company's too expensive.
0: So I, I think that's right. And and typically when I when I've looked at these sky high PEs, I'm always trying to look at other ways to look at the stock price, right? Because just because An absolute PE is high doesn't mean that the stock is necessarily overvalued. It may be, but it may not be. So you really got to do some investigating. And you know, a peg analysis is a nice way to determine that. Uh, Typically, rule of thumb is if the peg or the PE to growth rate is one or below, you know, it's it's a good, it's a good buy. You can still buy it up to one, one and a half. I, I think once you start to tip over two, get much over two. That's when you have to be a little more careful. Yeah, um, and I would
1: agree with that. That's kind of where I was going with that. You could use it with, say, technology companies. That way, you can say, okay, well, it's got a sixty PE, but the P, you know, maybe the PEG ratio is only one. Then right. maybe you're not so concerned about the fact that it has a sixty PE.
0: Right, right, right. You still have to be comfortable with what the E is, though, right? <laughs> right, and the, you you, know, and, you, and then, you you can't get away from that.
1: And the problem with PE and this, is, this holds true for the way I look at PE as well, PE, forward PE to historical PE lows, is that, you know, P, forward PE's can change, right? I mean, we're in a period right now where forward PE's are being cut. I mean, forward earnings estimates are being cut. Right. Which, of course, increases the PE from what it is today if you get cut more. Or, and- no, <laughs> no, no,
0: no, no, oh, no. or Or the PE is stable and the stock price goes down.
1: Yeah, or looking at historical and saying just basing it on historical, well, trailing 12-month PE is probably telling you nothing
0: right now. Correct.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, if you're in a bear market and you're heading into a recession, then trailing PE is could very well be the most useless <laughs> valuation metric out there right now. So to your point earlier of saying you got to know where you are in the cycle, you got to understand what, what could be happening, what the set sort of pitfalls of these different valuation metrics are.
0: Right. So you mentioned, Todd, that there are some companies that, you know, earlier stage, uh, they don't have earnings. No E makes the analysis a little difficult. Um, you know, I, I would say that there are two out there that you could start to use to get comfortable uh, price to sales. Right. Pretty simple. And then uh, what's known as enterprise value to revenue or, or to sale, something similar. Um, and for the listener, enterprise value is defined, or at least the way I was taught to define it. Was market cap uh, plus debt less cash? Some people don't. Some people don't remove the cash. Other other people do. The way I was taught was to remove the cash. So you're really trying to get um, a combination of the market value of the stock and the implied value of the balance sheet.
1: So I always use price to sales for um, companies like software companies. You know, again, companies where you've got very high P/E ratios that maybe aren't telling you a whole heck of a lot about what's going on with the, with the, you know the valuation of a particular high growth company. And so price to sales ratios, again, like you said, very easy to calculate. Something that you can get on any website. You can go to Yahoo Finance and type in the ticker symbol. You can go to the street.com and type in the ticker symbol. There's all sorts of you know these. It's very simple to to find though what the price to sales ratio is. But like all of these, and you, this is something else you hinted at, but I want to drill down on, it's most useful when you look at the chart over time of these metrics, mm-hmm. right? So as a standalone basis, the price to sales ratio of 20. What does sound that? very high to you? <laughs> right. Right? Yeah. But then if you look at historically over time, Salesforce or some sort of a big software company that's growth oriented, you might say to yourself, "Well, maybe it's not that ridiculously valued, right?" You need to compare it to something. You can't just, right. you know, you can't just simply say, "Well, the price to sales ratio is X, and therefore I don't like it." That may not be nearly as. Um, Uh, intellectually curious, is being able to see what it has been historically over time and then determine where you are in that band. Are you at the lower end of the band or the higher end of the band? Now, we certainly saw in 2021 price to sales ratios of software companies, you know, exploded. I mean, where you would say, okay, maybe five to ten times sales is Okay, for a software company now you are looking at valuations of 15 to 20 or 20 and more, and that's a little that's a little rich, if you will. But you have seen that normalize a little bit, and I think with price to sales again, I typically apply it to software companies, and ideally I'd like to see 10 or less. But again, I'm going to be using that um, relative to what I've seen historically for that particular company.
0: Right. Right. And, and again, I, I personally think that that's better, a better metric as is EV to revenue. Earlier stage companies, no earnings, right? Uh, and by no earnings, I mean no bottom line earnings, no EBITDA, earnings before interest tax depreciation, amortization. But I also think, though, that you've got to understand it on a peer basis as well, preferably moving through time if you can do that. I know there's a lot of math out there involved with this. Luckily, it's, as I like to joke, uh, because I was a math major in college along with being an economics major, uh, it's typically sandbox math, meaning most people can do it. Uh, And there are a lot of tools out there um, that can help you uh, look at this data. Even there are a lot of tools that actually show the data. Ah uh, these metrics and multiples in and of themselves. Um, so Todd, let's let's switch over to more mature companies. Obviously you can use a PE. you can use some of these other tools as well, but two other metrics that tend to get mi- and that enter the mix, enter the fray, dividend yield and enterprise value to earnings before interest tax depreciation, amortization, otherwise known as EBITDA. What do we think about these?
1: All right, so I don't like EBITDA. Um, I'm gonna channel my inner Warren Buffett.
0: Go ahead, go ahead. Why?
1: I <laughs> think he has a he has a great quote, uh, and I might butcher it a little bit, but it was something along the lines of um, "Who does management think pays for capital expenses? The tooth fairy." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, I think that EBITDA King. I mean, we were both old enough to kind of seen the birth of EBITDA. <laughs> I, mean, I think even i uh, you know uh really gained a lot of attention in the late 90s um in in trying to value some of these internet companies that were coming to market at very very high rich valuations and um you offline you told me a funny story about uh that had revolved around um Basically, not justifying valuation, but trying to figure out how companies... Oh, you know,
0: <laughs> yeah, we don't need to go into that. We
1: won't go there, but but I think what was interesting is that you could argue, and I think Warren Buffett has argued this, that you know EBITDA provides a lot of wiggle room um, to be able to craft the statistics to prove whatever it is you want to prove, and you need to be really worried... Uh, uh, cautious of that listeners. Um, Cause when you start looking really hard to find a metric that will back you up, it may be telling that you, that you have a problem with your thesis. Yeah, that no, that, you, you know, a different stop.
0: that those are words of wisdom, right? And, and I always say to AAP members that we always want to listen to the data in this case too. You want to listen to what the valuations are telling you. You may not like it, but, you know, if, if you to your point, Todd, if you go out of your way to justify evaluation so that it reinforces your the decision you want rather than the decision you should make. Um, I've seen people do it. I've done it a couple of times. It, it rarely works out in your favor.
1: Absolutely. One hundred percent. You know, don't don't try to force the square peg into the circular hole.
0: Well, I mean, here's here, here's the thing. The math in and of itself does not lie. Right? The math is the math. You know, you might make a mistake. That's gonna happen. So always check, always check your check your thoughts, check your assumptions, check the numbers. But I mean, you know, the math doesn't lie.
1: You know, the other thing that I just wanted to mention, because we haven't talked about it yet, is discounted cash flow. And I, I don't know whether or not you were gonna bring that discounted cash flow or not uh, it's
0: it's it's on the list i can see it right here
1: okay um but that that is another that's a little bit more complex
0: oh it's way complex but um, I, I,
1: but... you might be able to find a spreadsheet listeners that someone else has done that you can download to t- kind of cheat off of their work on this i i think that you might be able to track one down i'm not going to direct you in a certain place to, to do that. But you might find those useful in valuation of companies. Again, the earlier stage type companies that are heavily dependent on future growth and future cash flows to, you know, to, to Derman valuation. Uh, biotech, um, you could use DCF analysis. You could also use it for, um, again, some, some of the technology companies. But it, it is a more complex and way of looking at world.
0: But those models, Todd, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, they don't usually bake in something that tends to happen on average once every seven, eight years, i.e. a recession. So you know, there are only. I mean, you again, you really need to understand where you are in the cycle. If you're in the early part of an economic cycle, you might have you know several years that you can look forward to. I think the further you get into the cycle, and again, seven to eight years on average, you you need to be mindful of what could happen and just recognize that in your discounted cash flow uh, analysis. Maybe making some assumption changes to that model so you can uh, be a little more prepared because. Um, you know, we've all seen, I shouldn't say we've all seen, Todd, you and I have seen the uh, the decks that early stage companies looking for venture funding tend to have. Uh, it is the growth by hockey stick. Uh, and of course, over the five to 10 years, no one ever forecasts a recession, even though at some point it tends to happen.
1: Yeah, 30% growth for uh, eternity.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's risk-free right. rates of zero. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean and that's the again the more complex you make valuation the more assumptions you need to make. And if you make an assumption you're making an ass out of you and me. So So Wait a minute. Wait uh, a cautious. minute.
0: How did I how did I get lumped into that? Yeah, I
1: know. You not you not Yeah, you, yeah, not, yeah, 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 you, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: You collectively not you yourself. <laughs> um so I just I wanted to make that point as well that simple simple in many ways is better. Um so try not to get yourself too too married to using highly complex things because again the more assumptions the more likely that you're going to change one of those assumptions favorably to get the outcome you want.
0: Totally agree. Totally agree. So so to kind of sum up Todd, um n- understand the company that you are looking at that allows certain tools, valuation tools that you can't use maybe with others or shouldn't use with others. Make sure you understand the history, make sure you understand where the peers are trading. Um, Also, I would say, as we've said, make sure that you use more than one type of tool so that you can validate uh, what is really being said. And if you're in conflict uh, with two or three tools, perhaps the thing to do is to do nothing because if you try to force it, odds are you're probably doing something uh, that you shouldn't be doing. Anything else to add to that, Todd?
1: I'm going to give the listeners one more tip, a little like bonus tip. One of the ways that I mentioned, one of the, the, I look at forward P relative to historical P ratios. There's one other thing that I look at that helps me try to figure out whether or not it's more or less likely that they'll deliver on that forward earnings estimate. And that is to track their history of beating earnings expectations. So again, not perfect. But if you've got a company that's beaten earnings outlook in each of the last four quarters and estimates it gives you a little bit more confidence that maybe the company is executing well and will over deliver on their forward estimates as well. So the best I- case scenario would be history of beating estimates and a very cheap P.E. relative to historical P.E.
0: I, I think that is a good point to add, Todd. Uh, I think history, again, goes there. Knowing where you are in the cycle, again, goes there. Um, you, you did say the last four quarters, I know that there's a number of sites that tend to show that. I think Yahoo Finance is among one of them, uh, but do you know of a way to go back even further than that if you wanted to track six quarters, eight quarters on a on a rear view basis? Do, do you know of any that might have that? I, I, I- do,
1: I do, and you know, I think, you know, I, Seeking Alpha actually has that tool. They've integrated that now. You can actually type in the stock symbol, click on I think it's their um, earnings tab, and it'll show you 15 quarters. Oh, okay. okay. So you can, and it'll chart it for you.
0: And I and I um, imagine to other tools, uh, FactSet, Bloomberg. I'm sure that they. Oh have yeah, those. The more. Yeah, I, I'm sure that I'm sure those more robust, robust services. <laughs> Well, wow. no, no, no. I'm, 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 I'm just pointing it out because they, they tend to have a lot of uh, tools. But here, um, you know, we're, we're trying to uh, help identify uh, tools and and other uh, things that folks can use without breaking the bank. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, Todd. Uh, I think that's it for today. Any, any closing thoughts before we get out of here?
1: No, I'm just really eager to see what happens tomorrow with that CPI
0: report. I'm sure we're going to have a lot to write about. Uh, I look forward to uh, your uh, musings on it. I'll be sharing mine with the folks over at AAP. Uh, of course, Action Alerts Plus, which you can uh, sign up for by heading over to the street.com where you can also sign up for Street Smarts. And by the way, Todd, I thought I saw an interesting promo. Are they back with a dollar for Street Smarts?
1: They are. We're do, we're trying a dollar for Street Smarts. You can start it for one year, one dollar. So I mean that this. I think everybody can find that in their cushions, in their couch, uh, maybe under the seat of their car. Um, wait wait a minute. Wait a
0: minute. You're you're telling me that for less than I would pay at Starbucks for a cup of coffee, I can get a year of Todd Campbell. One year, one newsletter every day, telling you. What I think is the
1: important news of the day uh, that you need to know to make more money.
0: Well, listeners, I think you need. I think as we close out this podcast, you know what to do. That's all I'm saying. Todd, I'll catch you next time. Thanks, Chris.